Carol. I'm going to set this back here. I'll try to remember to put it back. <clears throat> good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, it is so good to be in the house of the Lord. I got a question for you all. I want you to think about it. You can say it out loud if you want. But I want to ask you, have you ever really messed up? Have you ever really messed up? Have you ever, by word or action, severely embarrassed yourself in public? I have more times than I would like to tell you about this morning. Well, the same thing happened with Peter. Simon Peter, as we speak of in this last chapter. I've entitled the, the, this previous sermon and this sermon as Revelation and Restoration. This is part two, of course. It is the final sermon of the entire Gospel of John, number 59, sermon number 59, I believe. Well, there's a lot of backstory to this. So I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes here. I want you to think about the time you, you really messed up. In fact, in my particular case, I'll tell you mine, after 10 years of sobriety way back when, I declared myself with a whole bunch of my Christian friends telling me, you're not really an alcoholic. Clearly you're not an alcoholic. So I celebrated 10 years of sobriety by starting to drink again. Wasn't that smart? Wasn't that brilliant? But you know, I'm a reasonably intelligent guy. I'm no rocket scientist. But the fact is, something was going on in here that wasn't right. It took me nearly five years to get sober again. Now, by the, the grace and mercy of the Lord, I will be sober, celebrating 20 years of sobriety this October. <laughs> the first 10 years, I was a recovering alcoholic. This past 20 years, I have been a delivered alcoholic. I can tell you there's a difference. Because that 10 years, it took a lot of tricks and games and things I played on my mind to not drink. God delivered me from the desire to drink nearly 20 years ago. Completely wiped it clean from me, something I had not experienced since I was a teenager. That's a little revelation. That's a little of the revelation. All right, let me quit flapping my gums and get into this. I want to tell you that Peter's history goes back. I'm going to read you a little bit from Matthew 26, verse 31. This is at the Lord's Supper. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will, he's quoting the Old Testament prophecy, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter replied to him, even if they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Pretty bold words from Peter, don't you think? Pretty bold words from Peter. Well, <clears throat> I'm here to tell you 
as we read last week, and let me get to the passage because I want to remind you a little bit of last week. If you want to turn in your Bibles or your Gospels of John, if you have them handy, to John chapter 21, I begin reading. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was called Didymus, Nathanael and Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter had said to them, said to them, I am going fishing. Now, why were they in Galilee? Jesus said, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. All right. Simon Peter, rather than deciding to wait and being the natural leader that he is, with all of his faults and flaws, let's cut Peter some slack here, okay? Granted, this may not have been an absolute act of obedience on his part. This may have been a diversion. I don't know. We don't need to get into that this morning. But Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we are also coming with you. They went out and got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Like the Cheerios commercial, nothing, honey. But when the day was now breaking, it's dawn, the twilight of dawn, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Probably hard to see, they're a hundred yards out. So Jesus said to them, children, why is he calling them children? Well, Maybe because they were acting a little like children, but I said last week that it was not really a compliment, but at the same time, this term that he used could also be a term of endearment. And I suspect that that's really what it was. It was a term of endearment. Children, you do not have any fish to eat, do you? He knows. He's God. He knows all things. He's in his resurrected body. They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find the fish. So they did it. They cast it. You don't hear them quibbling or anything like that. They listened to his voice. They did what he said. And then what happened? They found the fish, like he said. All right. A great quantity of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. Wouldn't be right to go see the Lord stripped for work. There's some reverence there. And threw himself into the sea. There's enthusiasm there. Peter loves the Lord. He does love the Lord. Does he do it perfectly? No. I love the Lord. Have I done it perfectly? No way. You love the Lord. Have you done it perfectly? No. So in that way, Peter is probably the most relatable in amongst these apostles. We can relate to him. I think because Jesus, our Heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit, the, the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel, a part of the reason why Peter is the way he is, I think, is so so many of us can relate. Okay? God doesn't waste anything. He knows all things. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And he's everywhere. There is not one single thing that escapes his sovereignty. He says, not even a sparrow falls from the sky. But what he knows it. 
He is absolutely in control, always, every moment. If a single molecule became renegade in the universe, apart from God's power, he would not be absolutely sovereign. And he is absolutely sovereign. Nothing is a mistake. The circumstances, all of it, is according to God's, at least his permissive will. It may not be good in our eyes, and you could say, how could a God do such, a good God do such a thing? Well, he has his reasons. That's a whole nother, there's a whole seminary course on that, maybe a couple or three, okay? But I just wanted to remind you of where we're at, all right? So they come in, they get out on the land, they've got this net full of fish, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. And what's the revelation here? Jesus has revealed himself by a miracle, he's filled up their net with fish when they couldn't do it all night. What's the distinction? The difference was the presence of Jesus. Is Jesus present in your life? Is he present in your life? So they get out, they see the charcoal fire, ready, made, fish placed on it, and bread. And Jesus said to, said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. So Simon Peter went up and hauled the net to land, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Remember last week, how does Jesus make breakfast? Breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to inquire of him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. That remind you of the fishes and the loaves? I think you'll find that it reminded them of the fishes and the loaves. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We know because of disciple testimony in Luke chapter 24, as well as the Apostle Paul writing it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Peter had had a private meeting of some sort with Jesus immediately after the resurrection. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened in that meeting. But you can bet it was very important in Jesus' mind to go and meet with Peter. Why? Well, let's go back and do a little more uh, remembering of what has happened. In John, remember? In uh, the, uh, yeah, easy for me to say. After the Lord's Supper and the night of the crucifixion, Peter is standing around a charcoal fire and he denies Christ three times. Why would he do that? That was in John chapter 18, by the way. Why would he do that? Well, trying to... He, why was he there in the first place? He was there watching the trial go on and he was out in the courtyard. He couldn't leave Jesus. He had enough love for Christ, so he followed him and watched during the trial. But because he wanted so much to stay there and watch the trial, he hung out and he knew because people were asking him, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And he said, nope, nope. I'm not reading exactly saying it. This is Stan's paraphrase. And he denied it vehemently because he didn't want to be driven out. He wanted to save his own skin. 
you know, he put himself in a situation where he was challenged and he, out of fear, he made a really, really bad choice. And right after the third time, Jesus had predicted that he was, he was going to do this, didn't he? You remember that? He said, Peter, you're going to die for me before, the, before the, the rooster crows. You'll deny me three times this very night. And Peter's like, no way, Jose. Okay, that wasn't exactly what he said. No way, Jesus. No way, Jesus. All right. Enough with my failed attempts at trying to be funny. Just wanted to give you some background. So let's get into this. Revelation and Restoration, part two. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, his nature, the way he is, and the restoration of Peter. You can read with me, if you wish, out loud, but you don't have to. You can just follow along if you like. Now, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. This is the first asking, do you love me? This word love Jesus is using here is agapao, or the noun version of that that we, most of us know is agape. We consider that the highest form of love. It's a selfless God kind of love, the way God loves us. Agape is loving someone who does not have any lovable qualities at all. Okay? It's intensive. It's self-sacrificing. Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he says, phileo. Phileo is brotherly love. It is also an intensive love. And to be honest, these words are used somewhat interchangeably. But in a focused passage of Scripture like this, the distinction between the two cannot, I repeat, cannot be ignored. There is a difference. <clears throat> Think of Peter. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> Peter knows that Jesus knows, as he will say in a minute, that he denied him three times. You know on that last denial, Peter's and Jesus' eyes met. Okay? And one part of Scripture says, and then he went out and wept bitterly. Peter was broken. He was crushed. Jesus had predicted, predicted that this was going to happen. He said that Satan seeks to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And afterwards, afterwards, well, this, we're going to talk about the afterwards a little bit here. <clears throat> so Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Peter, Simon Peter is referring to him. He says, you know I'm your friend. You know I have strong affection for you. You know I'm very fond of you. It's the ways of saying the brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love because of the phileo in front of it, Philadelphia. So then Jesus said to him, tend my lambs, tend my lambs. What does he mean, tend my lambs? Who are the lambs? <clears throat> Who is Jesus but the good shepherd? 
He refers to himself as the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, he is referred to as the great shepherd. In 1 Peter, Peter's first epistle, he is referred to as the chief shepherd. As the good shepherd, Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. And he did. And he took it back up again. So he says, tend my lambs. Is he talking about literal lambs here? No. He's talking lambs. What are lambs? They're young sheep. Now, it could be little children that are in Christ. It could be a 75-year-old person who's just come to Christ, who, spiritually speaking, is still a lamb. Spiritually speaking, a babe in Christ. So, he said, okay, you love me? Tend my lambs. Immediately, Jesus is giving him a job. What's he doing? I, I think Peter's response here is him saying, I can't step up to that agape love. You know, you've seen me fail. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever come to the Lord in your prayers and said, Lord, I love you. But in the honesty of that spiritual union in prayer with God, have said to yourself, but I know, Lord, I have not loved you the way I should love you. I know that my love for you is not all that it could be. Have you ever done that? I have. By show of hands, have you ever done that? I falter. I confess to you and repent before you that I, I admit I don't spend enough time in prayer. Every time I come up here to, to preach all, all through the night, Sunday morning I'm typically awake by 1.30 in the morning, even if I've only slept two hours. The thought of being an under-shepherd and feeding the Lord's sheep is scary. Okay? The responsibility of it scares me to death. Well, not literally, I'm still breathing. But it's scary. It's the reason why when you folks, the members of this church, asked me to become pastor here, I said no three or four times. Scares me to death. It still does. I am awake almost all night, Saturday night, every night. Now, this story isn't about me. But I have to, in prayer, oh, Lord. Here I go with another bad joke. Save my bacon, Lord. You know I'm not fully prepared. No matter how much I prepare, I can spend 10 hours. I've spent 25, 30 hours preparing a sermon, and it never feels finished. It never feels right because I'm still learning how to do it. Yeah, even after all this time, I'm still learning how to do it. Talk about your slow learners. But by the grace of God, I'm still here. You're still being fed. And it's all on him. He's doing it. But you know, he puts people as under shepherds, and he is assigning Peter to this task of feeding the sheep. Read with me the next verse. He said to him again, second time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. I could get into the differences between uh, feed my lambs and shepherd my sheep and all that. I'm not going to do that this morning because I'm focused on the love part. Again, Jesus said, 
agape love, and Peter said phileo love. Why? Because he knows he's failed. He doesn't feel like he can honestly step up to it. So what is Jesus doing here? What's he doing? He's restoring Peter. Peter made three public denials of Jesus, his Lord, who he loves, 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 really, really loves, and still failed him. And he's hurt, and he feels disqualified. And Jesus, instead of coming and saying, get out of here, bucko, you're done. He doesn't do that. That's a revelation of who Jesus is. That's a revelation of the Lord we serve. He has a job for you. Have you backed away from your first love? Did you, when you first got saved, have a greater zeal for sharing Jesus with people, for introducing people to the Savior? for inviting people to church, to talking about your Lord and Savior, just because you wanted to talk about Him, what He had done for you, how He had changed your life? Well, there's restoration for you, and it's a good example of it right here. Let's go to the next verse. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Stop. This time, Jesus comes down to Peter's level a little. And he says, do you phileo me? Now I've read all the different translations, the modern translations. Some of them say, and they want to say, Jesus, Peter's saying, you know I'm your friend. You know I'm very fond of you. And so Jesus, in one of those translations, says, are you really my friend? Can you imagine someone saying that to you? Can you imagine being in Peter's shoes with Jesus looking you in the eyes and saying, are you really my friend? I want you to understand, this is what some people call a come to Jesus moment. You ever heard that expression? We got to have this come to Jesus talk. When somebody has gone astray, when they've gone off the rails, they're not where they should be. That come to Jesus talk is where you bring them back to themselves. You restore them. You, you speak sense to them. To get them back to thinking rightly. Instead of being like that Saturday night character so many years ago that used to go, stupid, stupid, stupid where he's just constantly beating up on himself because he thinks so poorly of himself because he's not qualified for what he's supposedly doing because he said something out of turn that wasn't quite right. And he just self-flagellating, beating up on himself. Did it do any good? Did it make anybody think better of him? Did it make him think better of him? No. So, Peter was hurt. Peter was hurt. Because he, capital H, that's Jesus, said to him, small h, that's Peter, the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. He appeals to Jesus' omniscience, his knowledge of all things. You know that I love you. Peter's being honest. You know that I phileo you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep.
love. How important is it for us to love God? Do you love Jesus? Do you love God? Excuse me. Do you? Do you have warm feelings of affection for God? Love. The definition of love. Well, let's see what the Bible says about it. Okay. There we go. The Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Is it important to love God? How do you do it? How do you love God? What's the level of your love for God? How do you fall in love with God? Well, first and foremost, you can't love the God you don't know. You have to at least make some effort to get to know him. But in our modern time, after the resurrection of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? You must be born again. Before you were born again, you did not have the capacity to love Jesus. You did not have the capacity to love God. You were still an enemy of God. Apart from God putting that spark in you, you didn't have any possibility of loving him. That's the difference. If you have that Holy Spirit spark in you because you have been born again, you now have the love of God in you. But you know what? You can let that love falter. You've got to cultivate that love. You've got, you got to water it. You've got to pull the weeds that are trying to rob it. You've got to do like a good gardener would do and take care of that love. You've got to fertilize it, water it. You've got to do what it takes to help it grow. What is that? What are those things in reality? It's being in prayer. It's being in the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It's being in fellowship with other believers in a church family. It's maybe going to a midweek Bible study. It's listening to good biblical Christian music. It's having a Bible buddy to read the Bible with and to. It's all of those things. It's also when, you have, when your life has been transformed by the renewing of your mind, as it says in Romans 12 too, by the word of God and prayer and fellowship and all that stuff with your fellow believers. You with me? Everybody say amen. amen. That's how you cultivate the love of God in your life. <clears throat> it starts with God. We sang about the love of God and how it'll never die. If it was up to us, it would die. If it was entirely up to us, it would die. But because God said that he is faithful to complete the work he began in us, that love will not die. Now, if you ignore it, you stop going to church, you stop having anything to do with anything Christian, guess what? That love will feel like it's died. I know because I've done that. And you know what happens? When you leave the fellowship, fellowship with Christ, regular contact with Christ in prayer and in the Word, listening to good teaching and preaching, you stop going to church, you stop having, and you start living like the world, you will become 
if you are again, truly born again, you will not, you'll be so miserable you can't stay out there. You can't. All right. Off the rabbit trail, back to the Scriptures. What does the Bible say about the love of God? Loving God. Luke 7.47, no, not the plain. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but the one who has forgiven little loves little. Speaking of Mary Magdalene, these words are colored yellow as we always do because it's Jesus speaking. Speaking of Mary Magdalene, I believe. Now, she loved the Lord so much she put enough nard on his feet. It was equivalent to a year's wages. That's love. Would you donate a year of your wages to Shiloh Chapel because of your love for the Lord? I'm just trying to put it in perspective for you. Perspective. Would you give a year of your annual income to Shiloh Chapel because of your love of Jesus? Because if you would, I want to talk to you. Okay, I, I, I get it. Look, I'm not, okay, I'm, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not asking you to do that. <clears throat> I just want you to think about this kind of love, this fierce love because she knows how much she's been forgiven. But he says, but the one who's forgiven little loves little. Who's he talking about there? The one who thinks that God is privileged to have me on his team. Oh, sure, I had a few little peccadillos that needed to be taken care of, but God is lucky to have me. Okay, maybe that's a little ridiculous, right? But stop and think about it. When Peter said, even though the rest of these will deny you, I will never deny you. And yet, you see... Satan is God's Satan, and he sought to sift Peter, and God allowed it. God allowed it. Why? Because Peter needed to be, I shouldn't say humiliated, but that was the case. He was humiliated. Peter needed humility. Peter is, tra is now changed. He is transformed. This was something he needed. As bad as this was, this is something he needed. So, what does Romans 8.28 have to say about loving God? <clears throat> and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who, what? Love God. To those who are called according to his purposes. If you love God, you're called according to his purposes. If you love God, you're called according to his purposes. One more time, do you love God? Does that mean you're called according to his purposes? It says God causes all things to work together for good to those who, say it, love God and those who are called according to his purposes. Next one, 1 Corinthians 2.9. But just as it is written, and this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and he is essentially putting together 
some words from Isaiah here. But just as it is written, these things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him. <clears throat> Do you want all these things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard that God has prepared? You've got to love God. It's a prerequisite. It is a prerequisite. What's the first commandment? To have no other gods before him. If you have another god before him, what are you doing? Spiritual adultery. Idolatry. Do you love going fishing more than going to church? Do you love going boating more than going to church? Do you love going to the car show? Do you love going shopping? Do you love watching television? Do you love, well, well, do you? Stop and think about it before you do Peter and say, never! Stop and think about it. 1 Corinthians 8.3 But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. He could be she as well. If you know, if you love God, what does it say? God knows you, right? Where is it in Scripture that it says, many will say to me on that day, did we not do this in your name and that in your name? We did all these wonderful things in your name. And Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you evildoers, for I do not know you. What's the difference? They did all kinds of things supposedly in Jesus' name, but they didn't love him. They do not love God. They had ulterior motives. They were doing it for some other reason, but they weren't doing it for love. Do you know how powerful a motivator love is? You do, don't you? If you've ever been in love, you do stupid things because you're in love. You do much more courageous things out of love. There's a country song that I like to quote from time to time. I don't remember the name of the song. It says, love can walk through fire without blinking. And I don't know that I've ever heard any words that struck me so strong as <clears throat> hearing the stories, reading the stories of parents who in a, in a flooded train car somewhere held their children above the water while they drowned so their children could live. They gave their lives, saving the lives of their children. And so many other stories. So many other stories. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. Maranatha. Lord, come. Please come. Is what that Maranatha means. If anyone does not love the Lord... He is to be accursed. So what does that mean? If you don't love the Lord, if you don't love God, you're not in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit does not live in you. You got that? Ephesians 6.24 says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord, Jesus Christ, with incorruptible love. If you want to experience the grace of God. In fact, it is by grace through faith that you have been saved and not of works. 
Not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast, Scripture says. None of us can boast. I'm not saved because I'm good. Neither are any of us. Grace be with those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. What's incorruptible love? It's the Holy Spirit, God in us. James 1.12 Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved. He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to who? Those who love him. Is your love smaller than it used to be? Is it less powerful than it used to be, your love for the Lord? You need to cultivate it. You need to fix that. You can fix that. I implore you that you do fix that. But you know, God does the work on that. God does the work on that. James 2.5 said, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, Did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who, what? Love him. Heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Does the Bible think it's important that you love God? Does the Bible think it's important that you cultivate your love for God? Back to the passage that we are in. Jesus speaking, truly, truly. Does that sound like he's emphasizing something here? Amen, amen. Verily, verily. Veritas, veritas, which is truth. I tell you. When you were younger, who's he speaking to? Peter. This is Peter and Jesus having a conversation. When you were younger, you used to put on your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. You know that word, those words right there? That's a euphemism. You will stretch out your hands. That's a euphemism for being crucified. Now, some people will, would read this and say, well, sure, when you get old, you become frail and fragile and other people have to take care of you. And that may very well be the case. And we could easily look at this in our language and go, yeah, someone else will put your belt on you. So when you're old and fragile, other people will dress you. They'll, they'll bring you to where you don't want to go, maybe to the doctor's office or whatever. You could look at it that way, but we're not looking at it that way. Why? Because in the very next verse, John explains. Now he said this, indicating by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, what? Follow me. How many times does Jesus say, follow me? Okay, so Peter, right off the bat, if he's looking at this in the right light, he's being shown the general direction of your life shows that you're going to die for me. Which means Peter is in a way, whether he's seeing it at that moment or not, I can't say with certainty, but he is essentially being shown by he who knows all, past, present, and future, you're going to die for me, Peter. This should have been some assurance, but of course, you know, 
like the country song or the bluegrass song, I've heard it in both versions, says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I'd try singing it for you, but then I would hurt you, and I don't want to hurt you. Next verse. Peter turned around, okay? By the way, why is Peter turning around? We, John sitting behind him? Well, I got the feeling that they've gotten up at, at this point. And Jesus is saying, follow me, and he's starting to walk away. So Peter gets up, and he's following him. And he looks back, and he sees John back there. And whether he's gotten up and walking, I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So it sounds to me like they were up and walking. The one who also had leaned back on his chest at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who is betraying you? This is that, well, like it says, the Lord's Supper. Verse 21 and 22. So Peter, upon seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? <laughs> well, what about John? What's going to happen with John? Okay, it's a little lesson in here for us. If you ever wonder if Jesus wants us to be comparing ourselves with anyone else, well, what about, how come you're giving him all these, this type of gifting? How come you're giving him all this long life? How, well, what, you know, what does Jesus say? <clears throat> if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Then the final three words here in this verse, you follow me. Don't be sweating and fretting about somebody else's business. You've been called by the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. He's calling you, Peter, and he's given you a mission. Specific details, feed his sheep, tend his lambs. You know, as an under-shepherd, and all of us who have the title of pastor and Quite literally, there's myself, Pastor Rick, Pastor Street, Pastor Parker, Pastor Davis up there. Pastor, tending the sheep, tending the lambs, it's pasturing them. And the title pastor is about pasturing. It's about tending, making sure you're being fed the good word of God. And you're being fed well with the good word of God. So, he says, you follow me. Notice the exclamation point there. There's no, there's no punctuation in the original language, okay? But the way it's worded tells our, our translators where to put this punctuation. There is an exclamation point on there for a reason. I'm no Greek scholar. I can't tell you how they came to that conclusion, but it's there for a reason. You follow me. So I ask you, by show of hands, are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Some of you don't want to raise your hand. That's all right. I won't make you do it. That's between you and the Lord. Okay? You follow me. There we go. Therefore, this account went out among the brothers that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? In other words, none of your business. 
But it also points to Jesus' omnipotence. If Jesus wanted John to live 2,000 years, I have no doubt he could have made it happen. I have no question about that. That was not his plan. Verse 24, this is the disciple who is testifying about these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Whose testimony is true? John the Apostle's testimony is true. Okay? And finally, verse 25, but there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I expect that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Think about that. You think about that. You know, when Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus in John chapter 14, Lord, what has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. The one who does not love me does not follow my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is speaking very, very clearly here. Are you in his word? Are you reading his word? Are you studying his word? I've mentioned it before. When I'm on the road driving transport, which I do now Mondays and Fridays, WBCI's on all the time, if I can help it. Of course, now I got podcasts that'll play in my hearing aids, and I can listen to anybody I want anytime I want, and I do. I'm not saying that to tell you I'm better than you, by the way. I am not. Not in any way, shape, or form. You know that shepherds, under shepherds, we're sheep too? We need the same stuff you do. Perhaps we need to be a bit more diligent in our biblical Christian disciplines because we're called to. Because as <laughs> Scripture says, not many of you should be teachers because we're held to a higher standard. You think that scares you? Know why I said three of, no three or four times to you calling me to this? But I couldn't deny it. And I'm grateful now, even though it scares the snot out of me every Sunday. I just want to tell you, God loved us first. And we are closing here today. <clears throat> and I would love to close with a wonderful story. But the wonderful story is this. A year ago this month, you folks, you made me your pastor, officially. A year and a half ago, I became the, well, interim, temporary pastor. About a year ago this month, you made me your pastor. You have been very kind, gracious, loving, wonderful to me. And I just want to say thank you. I really do love Jesus, and I know he loves me, and I love you. 
And I just want to say thank you ever so much. And so this is the conclusion of the Gospel of John. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> you are so good and so worthy of our love. Father, your love for us, Jesus' love for us, the love between you, Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, is what gives us life. It's what sustains us. It is the very reason we exist. Help us, Lord, to cultivate the love, our love for you that you have given us that cost you so much to make it happen. Help us, Lord, to be good stewards of the love for you that you have given us and to water it and feed it and cultivate it and make it grow. I pray that you would bless this fellowship here at Shiloh Chapel, Lord. Bless us with a fervent, white-hot, burning love for you so that the world is drawn to the love of Jesus in this place. As only you can do. Bless us in that way, Lord, I ask. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen.